All right. If you will take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews. Did you preach in Hebrews, Gene? No? Okay. You did? Okay. I just, you know, I figured their Bibles might have had a nice break from falling open to the book of Hebrews. Join me in standing, if you would, please, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give to us wisdom and understanding. I pray for clarity. I pray, God, that you would allow that your truth would be proclaimed with power, with authority, with your unction upon it. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to each of us about the wonder of the promised resurrection. I pray, Father, that you would speak to each of us about the reality of what death is and what it means and why it touches us. And I pray, Father, that in this day you would bring glory to the risen Christ and that you would help us to walk in obedience to your truth, that our lives would be changed and transformed. We ask this and all things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The resurrection of the dead is perhaps the deepest core of the Christian faith. It is, in truth, one of the deepest cores of all major and most minor religions, for it answers the question that is inescapable in this life, what happens when I die? And this teaching is not minor, and it's far from simple, but it is accessible to all of us in one degree or another. From the least to the greatest, we can all agree that death is coming, And if we're left to our own abilities to reason things out and to think, it scares us out of our wits. But the Bible is absolutely not silent on the matter of death. We don't need to guess. The Bible teaches us what happens when we die, and it promises us a resurrection of the dead. I have heard more than one funeral sermon where a pastor who has no business calling himself a pastor will say something like, I just don't know what to say. Beloved, there's no excuse for that, for any of us, but especially for a man who calls himself a man of God. When faced with death, we know exactly what to say. The Bible tells us what to say. And I just want to take this time today, and I want to remind us that death itself is not really an enemy to us. And we are promised that we have victory over it and through it, Because of the death of Jesus. So let's start with the reality of why death is in the world. Okay? It's it's not just a physical process. People don't die because they get diseases. People don't die because they get into car accidents. People don't die for those reasons. That's not the core reason for death. Death is in our lives because of sin. Death is a consequence for sin. And immediately, before I go any further, let me just say and and let it lie that that statement alone undoes all attempt 
to bring evolution and the Bible together. Okay? The Bible is very clear that God created the animals complete and distinct. And the Bible is very clear that he did not use millions of years and the process of evolution to bring things around. The whole idea of of, um, theocratic evolution, of a theistic evolution, it, it, it flies in the face of Scripture. Because if death exists before sin, death cannot be a consequence for sin. And if death is not a consequence for sin, then death and sin are in no way connected and there is no way that the death of Jesus can have any impact on our forgiveness. Beloved, do not sell away the foundation of everything that we believe. Our hope rests in the truth that God has given us an answer for death and the answer is the death of Christ and that is because death itself is a consequence for sin. This is fundamental, and this is inescapable, and this is non-negotiable. And anybody who wants to try and tell you that evolution has a place in the Bible, that critters died for millions of years and became man, all of that stuff is garbage and should be dismissed out of hand. Either you're going to believe the Bible, or you're not. But the two don't come together. Okay? Death is a consequence for sin. Genesis chapter 3. Turn there if you would, please. I want to just put this in really plain and simple truth for us to see and to process together. So Genesis chapter 3. It's always best to start at the beginning. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I shall put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, I have given and have given have eaten from the tree which I have commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And also God made for Adam and his wife tunics of skin, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, Because the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil, and now, lest he put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, we see the consequence being given. The judgment was pronounced first in Genesis chapter 2. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And the consequence was pronounced for both Adam and Eve, that he would toil by the sweat of his brow until he returned to the dust from whence he was taken. So physical death entered into the world as a result of man's sin. What was the sin? Well, ultimately, it is rebellion against God. God had given man one command. What was the one command he was given? (laughs) Actually, the command that was given was to exercise dominion over all of creation. Right? He was to be in charge. That was his responsibility. Notice, there was a serpent in the garden who was a part of creation over whom Adam should have been exercising authority. Amen? Did he exercise that authority? No. He was given a single responsibility to lead the woman that was given to him, to care for her, and to help her, help him, to do the job that God had given. Who was taking the lead in the conversation? The woman, Adam, had already abdicated his one responsibility. He had allowed somebody else to do what he was supposed to do, standing by to let them just do it any way they wanted. He was not walking in faithfulness. He had not fulfilled his responsibility and the command that was given to him, and he had not fulfilled the responsibility for caring for the wife that was given to him, and he had been given one prohibition, only one, not two. Eve added to what God said, thereby making it easier to make God into a bully, right? God said, we're not even allowed to touch the tree. Did God ever say that? No. He said, don't eat it, right? They had been given one prohibition. Don't eat that tree. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. Don't eat the tree either, I guess. (laughs) We're not beavers after all. Don't eat the fruit of that tree, right? One prohibition. And in their rebellion against God, they did not fulfill his command, they did not fulfill their responsibilities, and they did actively engage in the one thing that he told them not to do. This is rebellion. And if you stop and think about it, all of our sin comes back to the same pattern of rebellion. Everything we do, God tells us to do something, and I don't want to do it. So what do I do? I do something else. He gives me responsibility. It's too much work. It's too hard. I'd rather go play games. I'd rather mess around. I'd rather do something that sounds fun to me. 
And of course, he gives me a whole list of things I shouldn't do in this day and age, and I just want to do them all because at this point, I'm ruined. This is rebellion. This is sin. This is the thing that taints us in every way. And every part of our nature is defiled by this sin. At the heart of it, the core of all of it, is an aspiration to be God. Did you notice what the serpent said to Eve? You're not going to die. In the day that you eat of it, you're going to be just like God. Knowing good and evil. But I don't think she was really listening to the full definition of what he gave her. Because as soon as that offer is out there, that's what resonates in a rebellious heart. Because at the heart of it all, the aspiration to be like God says, I want to be the one in charge. I don't want to be accountable to anybody else. And I want to do what I want to do and only what I want to do. Don't tell me to do something I don't want to do. Don't prohibit me from doing the things that I want to do. And whatever you do, don't call me to account for the things that I've chosen to do. I don't want to answer to you or to anybody else. And at the heart of it, that defines sin. At the heart of it, that explains everything that's going on. When you find yourself in the midst of something you know you're not supposed to be doing, if you just stop for a minute and deconstruct it, you'll find that pattern. You'll find that pattern of absolute rebellion against God and that determination to be your own God. Because that's really the heart of all of our sin. It's a desire to remove God from his place of authority and to put ourselves in his place. And this has impact not only in our actions, but also in the theologies that war against the truth. If you listen to wrong theology from anybody's perspective, and I don't care what label you put on it, I don't care what perspective you try to bring to it, one common element that's going to be woven through every single bit of it is it's going to be man-centered theology. It's going to be man's power. It's going to be man's work. It's going to be man's will. It's going to be man's freedom. It's going to be man's strength. It's going to be all about man doing his part to save himself because God just can't get it done. No matter how it parses out, no matter what area they want to emphasize the most, that's the number one common theme that's in the midst of all of it. Because every sin comes down to a desire to remove God from being God and to put us in his place. You boil them down, that's the essence. Now the reality is, is that the fall corrupted our entire nature. It defiled every part of us. It ruined us mentally, which is why the scripture tells us in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God. No one does what is right. No one chooses him. No one wants him. It defiled us in our spirit, which is why our communion with God is severed. Somebody's going to ask, maybe not me today because you all know the answer, but somebody's going to ask you, well, if God told Adam and Eve they were going to die, how come they lived? Right? Well, a couple of things happened. First of all, in the moment that they sinned, spiritually they died. In that moment, they were severed from their relationship with God. Previously, God had walked with them in the cool of the evening. Previously, God, and since no man has ever seen God, it was Jesus in a pre-incarnate form. If you stop and think about that for a minute, it's kind of cool. Anyway, 
Previously, God had walked with them in the cool of the evening. They had enjoyed a fellowship with God that was free and uninhibited. And the very first thing that they did was what? They hid themselves because they didn't want to be in the presence of God. They recognized that they were no longer agreeable to him. They recognized that they were no longer clean. They recognized there was something wrong with them. And every human theology wants to take that away. It wants to tell you, you're okay. I'm okay, you're okay, you do you, I'll do me, and we'll all be okay together. That's at the heart of all of this garbage that's plaguing our country about accept everything everybody says they are. You want to identify as a dog, shall I bark for you? No. You are who God made you to be. And I, for one, refuse to accept anything else. You can pretend all you want, but it doesn't make it true. You see, we're called to speak truth, and we're called to stand in the truth. And at the heart of it, every single thing that rebels against God is an attempt to undo the world in the way that he has made it. It's an attempt to make something out of his world that is opposed to his way. This is because our mind is defiled and our spirit is defiled. And if our spirit is defiled, we don't want to have communion with God. And the easiest way to not have communion with God is to go some way that God tells you not to go. Find the deepest hole you can, crawl into it, pull it over yourself and hide. Because your spirit doesn't want him. In that moment, their soul died. Spiritually, in in the essence of who they were, they were dead. And in that moment, the process of physical death entered into creation. Prior to that, Adam and Eve would have lived forever. Prior to that, death was not a thing. It was not something that anybody had ever experienced. No animal ever ate another animal prior to the fall. The scripture tells us that lions are going to eat grass again. Right? Death was not a thing prior to the fall. And if you're going to communicate to somebody who is suffering over the death of a loved one, you need to understand that death has entered into creation, not because God can't control things, but because man's rebellion instituted death. Okay? We operated in a way that God told us not to do, and it ruined our minds, it ruined our soul, it ruined our flesh, it ruined our wills, it ruined every single part of us, and we are completely defiled. And that means that we are also completely incapable of seeking God. We are completely incapable of turning to Him or towards Him. Now, the curse is not limited to us. Did you notice what God said about the ground that Adam is now going to be tilling? It's going to bring forth thistles and briars and thorns. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in Romans 9, Paul says, the earth itself groans longing to be released from this bondage. Right? The curse was not just on us. It's on all of creation. I'm sorry, it's Romans chapter 8. Sorry. 
<laughs> but more than that, our relationships themselves with one another were corrupted by the fall. Let's go back just a little bit and deconstruct this just a little bit more. Adam's sin was first. He abdicated his authority to lead and to rule over his family and to exercise the dominion that was given to him over all of creation. He stepped back from that. He abdicated that authority and went, you know, I really don't want to do that. You go and do it. And what did Eve do? Did she say, oh, no, 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 honey, you come on. This is your job. You need to do it. She went, no, 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 give me. Give me the power. Give me the authority. I want it. And I want you to notice something in what God said. Look at Romans, at Genesis 3 again. Genesis 3.16, God says this to the woman. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, if you take out the colon that's there, the semicolon, you're going to read that like this. In pain, you're going to bring forth children, but your desire will be for your husband. In other words, I have made you a sexual being, and you will conceive, and it's going to hurt when you give birth to children. But that is not what's said here. There's a full stop after you will have children, and it's going to hurt. That's the first half of the curse. Now childbirth is going to be a problem. It's going to be painful. It's going to give difficulty to the woman. Full stop. New concept. Your desire shall be for your husband. In other words, your desire shall be to rule over him. But you are under his authority. I will make him rule over you. That word desire is a very specific word in the Hebrew, and it means a desire to dominate, a desire to rule. It's only used one other place in the scripture, and it's in Genesis chapter 4, where God tells Cain that sin's desire is for him. It's the only place that word is used, those two places. It's a very specific instruction. It's a very specific reality of the curse. What has God just said? What God has said is is that you have broken the fundamental male-female relationship under which I made the world. You've broken it. And what that means is that from this point forward, the battle of the sexes is on. Men are supposed to rule. Most of them are weak and don't want to. Women, however, really want to, and they're not designed for it. I'm going to get all kinds of hate mail over that if anybody outside this building hears it, but that's the truth. Women are not designed to rule. They're not made by God to exercise authority over men. It's not your job. It's not your responsibility. It's a burden. Why do you think men want out of it? Because it hurts. Because bearing responsibility crushes you. And it's hatred on the part of men to say, you know what, I don't want to lead, I don't want to rule, I would rather just lay down and let you take care of it. That's really hatred. That's really saying, I would rather you get crushed under this weight so that I'm free to go play my video games. See how strong my thumbs are? That's, that's the reality of it. Look at our generation. Look at the world that is around us right now. 
It's filled with grown people in bodies that are completely infantile in mind. They have no concept of truth. They have no concept of worth. They have no concept of value. And the root of all of that is found right here. And it is a death. Yeah, we understand it when death enters in and somebody physically is taken from us. But understand this reality. Death pervades our entire lives. Every single part of our lives have been damaged by the fall. And it's all death. It's death to peace. It's death to hope. It's death to purpose. What was was the responsibility of man prior? He was to exercise dominion over the earth. To to actually bring forth beauty from chaos. And God said, you know, it was going to be a wonderful thing for you to do this, but now it's going to be toil. So even man's purpose has been defiled by the fall. We get so hung up on the physical reality of death when somebody passes from this life. But the truth is this. God said, I want to make sure to guard the way to the tree of life. Lest man take it and eat it and live forever. Why do you think he said that? Because I can't imagine a worse fate than an eternal life in this place. Right? No hope of ever leaving. No hope of anything ever actually changing, of nothing ever really getting any better. Just this continual grind, the continual toil, the continual wearing down and wearing out, but no hope of ever actually leaving. Beloved, in in a very real sense, death is a blessing. It is the opportunity for God to restore us to the fullness to which he intended us to be when he created us. Hear me. There are worse things than death. Amen? Amen. We can understand that because we have been made new. We can understand that because our hope is not in this place. But if you understand the reality that there is something worse than death, It's an indication that God has opened your eyes and opened your mind. And if you think about the chaos that's going on in the world around us right now, you begin to understand why everybody's so rampant about the virus and why everybody's so chaotic about vaccines and why everybody's so worked up about all these things because every single time somebody gets sick or somebody dies, it presses in on their mind, it could be me. And they're living with this awareness that they've done everything in their power to shove down. Right? We've tried to make death into nothing, right? That's why we fill it in our televisions and we put it in our video games. And we do all the other things that we do because it it inures us to the power of death. It, It makes it a little more tangibly bearable for us because if I make it into something that I can just hit reset and it goes away or stop the television or turn the channel so I don't have to deal with it, then all of a sudden I'm able to manage my own mortality just a little bit better. But when my neighbor suddenly just develops a cough and then he gets pneumonia and then he dies and he was well a week ago, I don't understand what happened. I can't hide from that. And it makes me crazy if I don't have hope. 
You need to understand what's really driving this stuff. Look, death is no more close to us now than it was before. But we're aware of it. Suddenly we've been forced to be aware of what's really going on. Suddenly we've been forced to be aware of the things that have always been circulating in the background that we've just hidden from our own eyes. This is the death into which man has been placed. But what the Scripture tells us is that the death that is here physically does not have to be a curse. Because the curse for death was placed on Jesus. Paul reminds us that in the Old Testament, the Scripture says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Right? And then he goes on to make the point that Jesus became our curse. He became the curse on our behalf, dying the death that we deserved, that he had no part in. Three beings were cursed. Three. Three beings were cursed. The serpent, the woman, and the man. Right? All three had a part in the curse. Of those three, we just read them all, which one was reminded that death has now entered in? Adam. The curse of death comes through the man. That's his portion of the curse. Because remember, Adam was ultimately responsible. You can hide from your responsibility, but you cannot take it away. And men who will not lead in their families will answer to God for not leading in their families. Because you can hide from your responsibility, but you cannot make it go away. Okay? You can pretend that you're not responsible. But God is going to come ask you some hard questions. We're going to talk about judgment next week. That's a whole different conversation, and and so stay tuned. Okay? You can pretend that you're not responsible. You can pretend that it's not my job. I left that up to her. But you know what? You're the one God is going to talk to. When you were born as a man, God gave you Harry Truman's plaque. Remember the plaque that sat on Truman's desk? The buck stops here. Ultimately, every decision that was made under his watch, he understood that as President of the United States, it was his responsibility, not anybody else's. He understood that. Whether you agreed with his policies or not, he was a man who knew what it was to lead. Okay? If you're a man, you are responsible The buck stops with you. And you cannot hand that off to your wife. If you choose to spend your life chasing dollars instead of raising your children, the responsibility for your wild child is not hers, it is yours. Okay? If you choose to spend your life chasing anything but your responsibilities, you are still going to answer to God for your abdicated responsibilities. Who did God come talking to first? 
Adam, what have you done? The woman, the woman, the woman. That woman you gave me. Going to blame God now? Wow. Beloved, understand this. This is the curse. And this is the reality of it. And death passed to mankind through Adam's sin. But Jesus wasn't descended through Adam. Who was his father? God. Born of a woman, so he was fully human. But his father was God. So the curse had no hold on him. He had no sin nature to atone for of his own. And he had no explicit sin to atone for. Either sin of commission, things he did that he shouldn't have, or sin of omission, things that he should have done that he didn't do. He did everything right. He did everything according to the law of God. And he was absolutely guiltless, which means that he was qualified to hang on the tree and become our curse. He took it away. So the problem of death has been resolved in Jesus Christ. He bore our death. Now, I need to address this just a little bit. Because I'm not telling you that you're not going to die physically. I don't want anybody to misconstrue what I'm saying. Death still has a foothold in creation. Paul goes on to say, creation itself groans to be delivered from this futility. Okay, your physical body is still a part of the creation. Death still has a foothold on your physical body. Okay? But death physically was the blessing inherent in the curse, not the curse inherent in the curse. Okay? What was the curse inherent in the curse? It was the separation from God. It was the toil. It was the futility. It was the fact that everything you do is wrong from the moment that you're born until the moment that you die. Even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Therein lies the curse. And in Jesus Christ, you have been delivered from the curse. So death, physically, is a deliverance. Death, physically, is a release. Amen. It's a promise. It's a blessing. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and do something stupid, okay? Because you have a job to do. You have responsibilities. We've been talking about responsibility. You are accountable to live your life to the fullest ability that you can to be useful for the kingdom until the day that God himself calls you home. But you do not need to fear death because promised to you through death is the resurrection that Jesus Christ himself ushered in. Amen. He is the firstborn over all creation and he himself in dying our death became the first fruit and we are what comes after. 
He bore that. And he opened the way so that in him we might have the hope of a resurrection. Remember, death is a consequence, right? So the cost of that consequence is what? Well, Romans 3.23 says that everybody sins, and Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, right? The cost of that is death. There's a physical death required, and to every man born, every woman born, every child born, there is the spiritual reality of death into which we are born. You must be delivered from that, or death owns you completely. But in being delivered from that, our perspective on death is transformed. Our perspective on death is changed into something which says, Lord, I'm not looking for my death today, but I'm not running from it either. Okay? I understand that one day this body will wear out. I understand that one day this heart will cease to beat, this mouth will shut up finally, and this brain will cease functioning, and I will no longer inhabit this shell. I get that. I'm okay with that. I'm not looking to die. I like life. I love my family. I love my wife. I love my responsibilities. I love preaching to the people of God. I love teaching you His truth. I'm not wanting to die. But I'm not running from it either. I'm not afraid of it. It doesn't scare me that something would happen and I would die. You know what? In the moment that God requires of me my life, I will die. Until that moment, I'm immortal. Until that moment, I'm not going to die. And nothing that I do will change that point one heartbeat. That moment is appointed. That moment is written in the roles of God before the foundations of the universe were established. The hour of my death, the circumstances of my death, the events surrounding my death, that is all taken care of. God knows exactly when that will be. And I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to fear it. I don't need to wrestle through it. I need to trust my God. And in trusting my God, it gives me great freedom and great power and great strength to do the things that are put in front of me to do. And if I die trying to do them, then that's what God ordained. Amen? See, our perspective on death is changed because death doesn't end us. Look, you guys seen those um, YouTube videos where the people hold up the blanket and the dog's on one side of the blanket and they jump behind the door while they drop the blanket and the dog's really confused. Where'd he go? You realize that's us in, in regards to death? We look at it like, oh my gosh, he's gone. And all the while, he's just right there. Right? It's just... A step. 
Well, Gina and I were talking before I started preaching, and <laughs> there's worse things that a man can do than just read the scripture. So let's read some scripture. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. I wonder why that page is falling out of my Bible. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 15. And we're going to start at verse 12. We're just going to take this in the order that Paul writes it. Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So immediately what Paul is doing is saying, look, some of you guys have a problem with this doctrine of the resurrection. You think it's not true. You think there's not going to be a resurrection. This was an impact that which was brought to the church by the Sadducees. Remember, during the days of Jesus, there were two distinct sects of Jewish leaders. There were the Pharisees, who were the people that put on religion like clothes. They dressed up in good deeds. They did everything for the men who were around them. They didn't really care too much about God as a rule. They just wanted to look good in front of their fellow man. The Sadducees were the liberals of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the power of God. They didn't believe in miracles, which is why they had a real problem when Jesus started bringing people back from the dead, giving sight to the blind, healing lepers, making lame men walk, blind men see, deaf men hear. All these things bothered the Sadducees because they distinctly didn't believe in them. It's hard when you don't believe in something when it's proven to you that it exists. It makes your day a little rotten. So the Sadducees did their best to confound Jesus. They're the ones that came to him with the story about the man who married a woman and died, and the woman married his brother, and he died, and married his brother, and he died, and he married his brother, and he died, and it went on and on until finally she'd kill seven of this guy's brothers. And he said, then finally she died, and so whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection if there's a resurrection? And Jesus said, you guys are idiots. You don't understand the power of God. You don't understand the nature of the resurrection. There's not even going to be marriage given and taken in heaven like that. It's not going to exist. You don't know what you're talking about. Right? So their teaching had invaded through some other parts of what was going on. The, the, the logical thinkers of the world, the Greeks, remember when Paul was preaching in Athens and the, the, the Athenians were digging what he was saying until he got to the resurrection of the dead and they went, What? No, can't happen. Right? This is a sticking point. Why? Well, because we don't really know. And we're scared of it. And so one way that people deal with death and their fear of it is just to say that death is just the end. There's no punishment afterwards. There's no bad things afterwards. There's no good things afterwards. But honestly, I can live with that. If, it's, if I'm just going to end, okay, then I'll end. That it's easier for people to process than the reality that whatever you do in this life, there is a consequence in the next. Right? Because that scares me. That really scares me. If I understand there's a God, and I understand that there's a resurrection, and I understand that I'm going to stand before the God who is and give an account for the things that I'm doing right now, that's a terrifying reality. Right? So it had invaded the church at Corinth. This teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. But listen to what Paul says. If Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith also is empty. And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Okay? You follow his logic? You with me so far? Paul says, look, you guys are saying there's no resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is not raised. Because if Jesus is not raised, then you have more trouble than this. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. And get this, you are still in your sins. Okay? Now we got skin in the game. Amen? Because if Christ is not risen, if the resurrection doesn't happen, then you have no hope to ever be forgiven of your sins. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's affidavit that his death was acceptable. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was God's proof that everything that Jesus said and did was right. Which is why Paul tells us in Romans 10 that you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means own Him as Master, and believe in your heart, what? That God has raised Him from the dead. That's how a man is saved. This is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and implicit in Jesus' resurrection the reality that you also will one day be raised. That death is a toothless snake that has no power over you. It has no victory. It has no strength. It has no potential to harm you in any way. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul's making the connection that I just made, that our resurrection is directly attached to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has become the first fruits of the resurrection. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Each one his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he's put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all these things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I'm going to skip down just a little bit. In verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living thing. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of earth, made of dust. 
the second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. In other words, death will touch us all physically. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. We will be raised glorious. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible man must put on incorruption. Praise God. (laughs) And this mortal man must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption... And this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now I want you to pay attention to what Paul just did there. He took the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he applied it to us, and he said, because there is a resurrection, you work for the kingdom. Because there is the promise of a resurrection, because there is the promise of something beyond this life, you take that strength and you take that power and you work to advance the kingdom of God with everything you have in you and you do not fear the evil. You do not fear those who will speak against you. You do not fear those who will hate you. You do not fear those who will do their best to destroy you because in the end, the very worst thing they can do to you is the very best thing they can do for you. They can send you home to your God and your reward. And they can't do anything else to you, beloved. They can't touch anything that actually matters. Why are we afraid? Why do we hide? Why do we shut up because somebody's going to take us off Twitter? (laughs) Please, take us off Twitter. Why are we worried that somebody's going to become offended when we speak the truth? Speak it in love, but speak it. Because they cannot harm you. Even if they kill you, they cannot harm you. Because death has no power over us. Amen. Look, I'm going to say this again. You will die unless Jesus returns before the hour of your appointed end. You're going to die. Settle it. Okay? Just settle it. Resolve it in your mind. Process it. Go sit on a plot of ground that you think you're going to be buried in. I know people that have their plots. Go sit on your grave. Think about it. And then let it go. Okay? 
Because it doesn't matter. Your death here will miss you. But we'll also celebrate you. And we'll know that you have received your reward. We'll know that God's promises are true. And if you know that on the front end, it changes everything about how you live every moment you've been given. It has to. It absolutely has to. Because if you're not living as a dead man walking, you don't understand it. You are a dead man walking. Your death is appointed. You just don't know when. But it doesn't matter. Because on the other end of that momentary cut, that tiny slice, there is glory beyond your comprehension. There is joy. There is reward. There is promise. There is the voice of your Father saying to you, Welcome home, my child. Either he's going to say, Well done, or he's going to say, Well, that's done. (laughs) But either way, you're home. Amen? Either way, you're home. And it doesn't matter anymore. Walk in the strength of who you are. Walk in the strength of whose you are. And do not fear the world. It's time for the church to wake up. It's time for the church to arise and be who God is calling us to be in this place and in this time. There is a reason why you are alive in this evil era. If God has appointed the hour of your death, Do you understand He's also appointed the hour of your life? Do you understand that you have been prepared for such a day as this? This is your hour. This is your day. This is your fight. And this is your age to advance the kingdom. Beloved, it's time for us to rise up. And be the church. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. They are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. For casting down every argument and every pretension. Every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we bring every thought into captivity once our obedience is complete. Did you ever stop to think about what obedience Paul's talking about? He's talking about the obedience to live as if you belong to God in everything that you do. To walk that out. And when you do that, you become an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God. Because if they can't hurt you, they can't stop you. Amen? Amen. You say, but they can take all my stuff. Then don't love your stuff. Amen? It's just stuff. You cannot 
Gauge your life by things that can be burned up. Things that perish in the using. They're not the measure of your life. If you're worried that by speaking the truth, somebody's going to unlawfully search and seize your property and kick you out of your home, and you're going, well, I can't speak the truth because I'm worried about them not honoring the Constitution and unlawful search and seizures just around the corner. All that's true. So what? If you're worried about it, you're loving the wrong things. There's a reason that the Scripture calls us sojourners. Pilgrims. We don't belong here. This world is not our home. It does not define us. This world is given for us to exercise dominion over. To work. To bring beauty from the chaos. I would humbly submit to you that if your calling is to bring beauty from the chaos, you have more raw material than any time in the history of man. Because we are living in days of chaos. So do your duty. Walk in the strength and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing that death has no hold on you. And be the light and be the glory and bring beauty from the chaos as you go forth in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Because to such a time as this, you have been appointed. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace. And I pray, God, that you would give to us a perspective. Lord, give each of us the space and the time and the room to contemplate these things, God, and then give us the courage to live them. Help us to walk in grace, to live out the truth that Christ is who he says he is, and that he accomplished what he said he did, and to know that death has no power over us. God, I pray that you would guard this body But first, I pray that you would guard us from us. Let us not become too enamored by the things of this life. Rather, let us walk in obedience. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have an impact. Let us win this community, this state, this nation. Let us win the world in the strength and the power in the name of Jesus Christ so that the Lamb who was slain that we might have the hope of a resurrection that we might be forgiven so that that Lamb, that precious Lamb Jesus would receive the fullness of His deserved reward. Give Him all that He has deserved, all that He has earned. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.